This season of the Chefs Manifesto podcast is brought to you by the Crop Trust. With more than 15 years working globally to safeguard our agricultural biodiversity, the Crop Trust has been a strong advocate for greater long-term resilience in our food systems. Through an endowment fund, the Trust is working with partners to secure the most important international, regional and national collections of crop diversity in perpetuity, as well as the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, the world's backup facility for seeds. In short, the Crop Trust's work comes down to one simple vision, ensuring the basis of our food is safeguarded forever. For more information, follow the Crop Trust on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook, or visit their website at croptrust.com. We the chefs, we the chefs, are working together to create a better food future. I am George, Andy, Tom from Nigeria, Switzerland, Los Angeles, London, India, New Zealand. Ingredients are medicine. Ingredients are superpowers. Food is joy. Food is love. Food is is life. life. A very warm welcome to the third season of the Chef's Manifesto podcast, produced and hosted in collaboration with the Crop Trust and Food Forever. My name is Alejandra Schrader. I'm a plant-based nutrition certified chef, author, food entrepreneur, and activist based in Los Angeles, California. It is a great pleasure for me to host the first two episodes in this brand new podcast season as a founding member of the Chef's Manifesto, promoting sustainable plant-based cooking as a way to build stronger food systems and achieve good food for all. Because good food is the foundation for everything, providing the energy needed to fight for this better future for everyone, everywhere. In this season, we focus on one particular thematic area of the Chef's Manifesto, the protection of biodiversity. In each episode, we spotlight one diverse and resilient crop, from millet, sweet potato and wheat, to coffee, potato and sorghum. We talk to chefs who are working and cooking with those ingredients, and to experts who give us valuable insights from a scientific perspective. Today, in episode two, we will take a look at what is also called the camel of crops, sorghum. Sorghum has earned its nickname because of its ability to grow in arid soils and withstand prolonged droughts. This crop plays a major role in the food security of millions of people in marginal agricultural areas. Globally, sorghum is the fifth largest cereal crop after wheat, rice, maize, and barley. Sorghum displays an impressive diversity in both its qualities as food grain and its adaptations and appearance. While it is particularly adapted to drought-prone areas, sorghum can also be grown in temperate conditions and in high altitudes. Sorghum's versatility is clear with its multiple uses beyond the grain on our plate. In the southern United States, a sweet syrup is made from the juice of the sorghum stem, and the cereal makes excellent brew for a beer. The plant is often used as animal fodder after harvest and the straw for fencing and building material for huts. Its roots can be used as fuel for cooking, and now sorghum is even grown as an energy crop, producing ethanol for use as biofuel and in biodegradable packaging. Today, I talked to Chef Ali Mandri from Kenya 
about how he is cooking and using sorghum. And what is important is to his own culture. We will also be joined by Maimuna Hussein Katan, who will share her story and approach to the crop from a cultural significance perspective. And finally, Eva Wilson, our expert for this episode, will share her insights on how important sorghum is as a diverse crop. So without further ado, I'd now like to introduce you to Chef Ali Mandry, also known as Chef Ali L'Artiste, a celebrity chef, TV radio personality, culinary instructor, and food stylist from Kenya. Chef Ali was born in Mombasa and discovered his love for cooking at a young age with his grandfather. Ever since, Chef Ali has pursued a career as an artistic chef, following his passion for sugar artistry, pastries, and cakes. Through his career, Ali has specially works to champion his native Kenyan cuisine, both nationally and internationally. As part of his international advocacy, Chef Ali has been part of IFAD's Recipes for Change, a project in which chefs highlight the need for smallholder farmers to adapt to climate impacts to protect their food security. I want to welcome Chef Ali Mandri. I'm so excited to have you on board, Ali. How are you? Fine, thank you. How are you doing, Alejandra? It's amazing to connect with you. It is amazing to connect with you, and I haven't seen you since the launch of the Chef's Manifesto, which was in Sweden at the Eat Forum, and I'm so glad to reconnect with you. I know it feels like forever. I think that was 2018, or maybe something I can't remember, but it feels like forever, but we're still connecting. The good thing is that, you know, virtual and all this kind of stuff, I can still, I can still see you. I can still speak to you. So it's all good. The only thing was meeting one-on-one. That's basically the whole thing, but it's all good. At the end of the day, we thank God. Yes, we do. And we're, um, and we're able to connect this way. Like that's amazing. That technology allows us for this opportunity. And I'm super excited to talk to you today because uh, our episode is focused on sorghum, which is such a valuable crop. And, you know, you, you've had the opportunity to work with the bounty of African ingredients that are at your disposal in, in Kenya. And it must be so inspiring to have such a rainbow palette to produce a delicious plate of food. One of these is a super grain sorghum. Can you please talk to us about what sorghum means to Kenya and how it is used traditionally and the variety of colors that you get in your sorghum? So the thing is, sorghum is readily available in the country. It is a uh, grain that grows all over. It doesn't need a lot of water. So this means it's very sustainable. It is available throughout. It is reasonable. You can buy it anywhere from any local store or supermarket and uh, it is just delicious when cooked well. I've uh, worked with sorghum like almost my entire life because I, I grew up seeing my parents cooking bread out of sorghum. Like we call it mkate wa mofa. This means uh, mofa bread. It is a, a solid bread that's made out of sorghum. Uh, what happens is they basically you just ground the sorghum and then you add a little bit of some onions, a little bit of some fennel, some salt, and then you just make a mix and then you charcoal grill that chunk of 
bread and it is just delicious as a bread that you probably just have it with a little bit of some honey, tea, black tea, you know, milk tea. It's just up to you. I grew up seeing uh, my parents do that. The fact that sorghum is such a nutritious grain that it is readily available. We love to use it at the end of the day, but it's just some part of the country that really uses it a lot because it grows a lot in the country and then a lot of farmers use it to make money because they normally export it for them to be able to earn a living rather than cook it and consume it on their own because our staple in the country it is maize meal which is also known as the ugali that's cooked all over but the fact that now maize or cornmeal or rather the ugali is getting a little bit scarce it is very important to tap into what is available which is the sorghum that's readily available and uh, come up with amazing recipes for people to be able to use this product that's available throughout and be able to nourish their diets every single day. So it comes in one uh, one type that's very popular. It looks slightly whitish with a touch of brown in it. It is nutty in flavor and it cooks really, really fast. All you need is basically just soak it a little bit and then boil it up and then after that you can do whatever you want to do with it. You can uh, split it a little bit. That way it will cook faster as well and uh, it's just a lot you can do with sorghum at the end of the day. You can make ugali meal out of sorghum. You can mix it with green grams and make a meal known as mseto, which is a very popular Swahili starchy meal. The beauty about it is that it's gluten-free and uh, it is just amazing for the diet. Uh, Yes, it is. And it's so sustainable. It's able to grow in such arid lands, but it's also so nutritious and there's so many nutrients that are available to us through it. And I, I love the fact that sorghum is very popular in Venezuela, where I grew up. In fact, my father had a very small uh, sorghum farm, and it just speaks about the African influence in Latin America. And that connects us, too. I know. I know. It is amazing. <laughs> it is Someone someday asked me about uh, the difference between sorghum and quinoa. Okay, quinoa to me is a very exotic kind of grain. Someone actually said that I feel like sorghum is even a little bit more nutritious, but a cheaper option. And I went into tapping into that and trying to see, do a research of how healthy is sorghum. And to my surprise is that it probably would give you almost the same kind of uh, nutrients. And uh, it's just that it is a cheaper option, which at the end of the day, I feel like cheaper works well because it is something that's available. <laughs> uh, yes, it does. And it also works great to solve issues of food, in- food insecurity, And so it is so important, you know, sorghum grows where other staples are not able to, like maize in some areas uh, in Africa. And in Kenya in particular, sorghum is added to dishes such as, like you mentioned, ugali, which is Kenya's staple maize dish, and another um, called brown ugali. We'll also hear more about this in the next interview with today's expert, Eva Wilson. Have you experienced this dish and do you feel sorghum is valued as it should be as a drought-resistant crop? Well, the thing is, I would easily say that it is a little bit under underrated in the country because, uh, especially our country, because we are stuck with our maize meal. Like someone would feel like the diet isn't complete without ugali, yet we have sorghum that is readily available, but we're still stuck with our ugali, which is the maize meal. And at the end of the day, it is something that's a little bit getting scarce right now, and it's not available throughout. Not everyone has access to it. 
especially the rural who really depend a lot on what they grow and they easily grow the sorghum. So here's a story uh, of me visiting a site in uh, Mwingi, that's basically a country where I went to learn about sustainability, like uh, the products that they do produce and the climate change and what really affects them growing whatever they grow. So I noticed that they do grow a lot of green grams and a lot of sorghum. But the only problem is that they didn't know how to prepare the sorghum because they normally use the sorghum as a money-making business where they can be able to sell and export the product. So they normally grow it and then they immediately sell it out. And they didn't know if they can be able to prepare it because they love to prepare ugali. And I told them, you know what, what we're going to do, we're going to cook this. So I took the sorghum, I helped them split it. And then after that, we made a lovely dish with the green grams, which is known as the mseto. And they were amazed to taste something delicious something they grow every single day, but they never had a chance to cook it because probably they didn't know if they would enjoy it because it is something that they used to sell. It was so surprising for them to know that they can be able to enjoy something as good as ugali, which was really important for me. And that's when I was really more into creating more recipes out of sorghum and creating awareness to the country that you can enjoy sorghum because it's readily available. The fact that we have a problem with maize right now Uh, we can always enjoy sorghum that's readily available, that's cheap in the market, that you can afford and enjoy. So uh, it is something that I am really passionate about at the moment. And that's why they call me the sorghum hero, because I want to make this shine again. I love that. I love that. And by becoming a sorghum hero, you are also a sustainability hero and a food diversity hero because I feel like in the same with my own culture that we're so maze centric uh, that, you know, teaching and encouraging people to diversify their culinary palates by creating something new and exploring new flavors. Uh, so hopefully that That will stick. My sorghum here, I love that. Um, you have created such a vast amount of delicious African delicacies. And you mentioned one of your favorite dishes is a salad using sorghum. Can you talk to us through this dish and why you love it? I always have uh, sorghum in my fridge. So what happens is that I normally split the sorghum and then I boil it. And after that, I basically just store it in a container and refrigerate it. And then it looks just like couscous. It's nice and puffed. I'll just quick toss in a salad. So I'll just cut some mangoes and go in with my olive oil. I love my spices. I'm just going to go in a little bit of some black pepper, a little bit of some cayenne pepper. And then I'm going to go in with some garlic and lime juice toss it up, a sorghum and mango salad. When you eat it, it feels like you're eating cereals with a fruit in the mix and a little bit of a spice in there. It takes you out of this world. And this is something that I, I noticed that I can be able to come up with amazing salads. I love to add a little bit of sweet and sour aspect in the mix to make it a little bit fun because I'm a sweet guy. I love sweet stuff and I really enjoy. So my next thing is basically adding some strawberries in the mix and trying to see how it's going to work and probably a little bit of some honey. But then it is amazing how the flavors really match really well. You can still get the nutty flavor from this sorghum. How amazing is it because it is nutritious. So you're eating some Something super healthy, sustainable, nutritious. It is just amazing. So I basically came up with this salad and my wife and my girls love it. So we can't miss this salad at least twice in a week. Here we are enjoying sorghum like any other meal every single day. 
Oh, that sounds so delicious. It sounds right up my alley. I love mango. I love spices and I love sorghum. So I may be stealing that idea from you, Chef Ali. I know. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I'm actually thinking into posting the recipe right now since I've mustered it and I feel like, wow, it's about time. I need to share this recipe and show people how amazing sorghum can be as a salad. Probably people didn't think about that, but I'm like, you can do it. You, all you need to do is experiment in your kitchen get creative have some fun with your ingredients and then you'll definitely have an amazing meal so i like to do a little bit of some experiments and after that one once i approve and my family approves we definitely just go online and tell people here you are enjoy your sorghum and mango salad I'm looking forward to that, Ali. That's a that's a great idea. And I, I really love what you do. And I respect your work so much. Thank you so much for, for accepting our invitation and being part of the Chef's Manifesto podcast. And I, it will be until next time. And I hope it's not too long. You are welcome. Thank you so much, Alejandra. It was lovely to connect again. Much love, the Chef's Manifesto. Take care of yourself. You too. Thank you. It's time for our second interview today with Maimuna Hussein Katan. Maimuna is the CEO of the TIA Foundation, an award-winning grassroots organization that supports families of immigrants, refugees, and displaced Americans. In her work, Maimuna has been helping to transform sentiments and narratives around refugees in Southern California. A creative visionary with a solutions-oriented mindset Maimuna led the way on record-breaking initiatives, including the creation of innovative programs and services that impact nearly 1,000 people every year. Maimuna has also established Flavors from Afar, a social enterprise that employs former refugee chefs in Orange County and Los Angeles. Today, Maimuna is here to share her story and to tell us more about a particular chef at Flavors from Afar who introduced her to sorghum. Welcome to the podcast, Maimuna. Oh, thank you for having me. This is exciting. <laughs> I just want to start, you know, I want to learn a little more about you. Uh, can you tell me about your first memory of your mother cooking at home? Oh, wow. Um, I know that growing up in a refugee household, my mom was struggling with transitioning into American culture. So learning English, uh, figuring out public transportation, all the basic transitional processes. One place that she really blossomed and shined was in the kitchen. And I remember growing up in our home, the music was on. Um, she was very excited about cooking. She would invite us in to help uh, chop up vegetables with her. And one of my favorite memories was making a dish called sambusas. It's kind of like Indian samosas, but it's a East African version. We would wrap the sambusas and compete with each other, like who could do the frying better. And she's always encouraged expression through foods. That's always been uh, beautiful to watch. Oh, absolutely. And I can relate so much being a first time immigrant myself and having to go through the whole process, learning a new language. Food is what helped me connect to what I knew and to my roots. And it's so comforting. So I'm so glad that she was able to share that uh, with you. Yeah, it's just really wonderful. And then I remember when I was in college and like in my 20s, if I wanted to host a dinner party, I would just get cold feet towards the end and just call up mom and ask her to make food. <laughs> 
So I would go pick up trays of dishes from her. <laughs> that's a that's a nice lifeline to have. <laughs> but now you have your own journey into food, and uh, you have a, a catering and restaurant company, Flavors from Afar, which has taken you through establishing a nonprofit, working with refugees, to eventually being inspired by the amount of cooking talent you were surrounded by. And these stories and foods and flavors that come from all corners of the world, but figuratively sat at one table. I've heard that one of your values is that sharing a meal is a delicious opportunity for cultural exchange. Could you please elaborate and share more about this incredible journey? Yes, yes, 100%. So um, in 2010, I established the Tia Foundation with my mom. Tia means my love and my family's language. Through the organization, our intent was to help refugees acclimate and transition into American culture and really focus on the kids. She had stepped away, I would say like 2012, because it triggered her PTSD. And I stepped in as the executive director and I was able to acquire um, a government contract. Unfortunately, there was funding that started to dwindle around refugee immigrant support. So we really had to think about sustainability. And I presented the idea to some of the clients and volunteers and staff at the time about opening an international tea house. I'm like, I really want to do an international tea house and coffee. I'm, I'm Ethiopian. We love coffee. Like, let's do this. And we could celebrate different cultures. And one of our clients at the time, he was an asylee from Egypt. He looked at me and he's like, you know, that's a good idea. Why don't you consider the possibility of food? Because there's so much great food in the community, these really great chefs and dishes. You could get a cloud kitchen and, you know, start doing delivery options. I thought, wow, that's such a great idea. But I was so intimidated. I'm not a trained chef. I'm not a professional at this. What if I do it wrong? But another part of me, maybe it's being born on a refugee camp. I thought, what do we got to lose? Let's try it out. We hosted an audition um, January 2018. 11 of the refugee clients, the parents, they all auditioned. Out of the 11, we hired five from the group. And from there, we just expanded. This is the beauty of this transition is while we were moving into sustainability, I was also losing my staff. So there was all these budget cuts and it was hard to respond quick enough. So by February 2019, I was the only employee at the TIA Foundation. It was just me. And here I was still doing these pop-up catering opportunities, but I really had to do some soul work and joined a few training opportunities. LA has a really beautiful startup culture. That summer, I joined a pitch competition through the Orange County Community Foundation, and I was able to win $50,000. And that $50,000 helped us acquire kitchen spaces in Little Ethiopia and at the time Hood Kitchen in Costa Mesa. And then I met with other prospect partnerships. There's a, a woman by the name of Joanna Kong from Sun Family Foundation who really believed in my vision. We had a couple of meetings about the space in LA. Next thing you know, I'm hosting a grand opening with uh, my co-partner, my co-founder, um, Christian Davis. He's the program manager. I'm the executive director. We launched the restaurant Spring Solstice, March 21 of uh, 2020, the same week as the stay-at-home orders. But it's also fueled by that two years of community work and building up our, our support base and just getting 
getting the word out. So here I am being interviewed by Chef's Manifesto. I, I could never imagine this. And it's been um, seven months. That is incredible. And talk about timing, right? Like this year has been quite challenging. But what it sounds to me is that you had an opportunity to create a platform to bring chefs and cooks and people from different cultures and feature their knowledge as a way to promote biodiversity. And that's exactly what the Chefs Manifesto promotes, but also the platform that it brings us to us chefs, like a way to get together, even if we've never met in person, even from across the oceans, but, you know, learn from each other and, uh, and encourage each other to promote the values that we should be advocating for from biodiversity and environmental soundness to social justice and things that you just talked about. So I'm just really grateful that the Chef Manifesto was able to connect with you. And I'm really curious because, you know, you're bringing all of these different chefs and cultures into your kitchen. You mentioned to me earlier that there was a very popular dish from a talented chef, Chef Minal from Eritrea. Tell us a little more about your collaboration with her the dish that you say she cooked with sorghum and why is sorghum so important to her? Yes, yes. So a little backstory about Manal. She was an asylum seeker from Eritrea and she actually migrated to Central America by herself and then through Central America came into California and she was actually detained for six months. So she was here already on her own. Now she's in a detention center for six months. There was a local church that was able to support her transition process to start over in LA County. And then we got introduced because they loved her food so much. She's just very talented as a chef and with her cuisines and very positive um, perspective about the world. She's very phenomenal. And one of the dishes that she works with, it's a traditional dish. It's made of is lamb shakes, okra, salt, pepper, extra virgin olive oil, red onion, tomatoes, chicken stock, cardamom, bay leaf, saffron, cinnamon stick, garlic, and the sorghum. We pair it with a honey lemon fresca because it should technically be the honey wine, <laughs> but honey lemon fresca is, is the drink that we offer as a pair with this dish. It's actually the most important crop in Eritrea, and it's used in injera, the bread, porridge, and also alcohol, to my surprise. Other grains that are important in the area include teff, which you probably have seen at different um, Eritrean and Ethiopian restaurants, sesame, chickpeas, millet. The sorghum is actually used in homes as a day-to-day -day dish. It's, it's the most used. It's also used for livestock and pastoral communities. The reason why it's so important in Eritrea, especially with the landscape next to the Red Sea, is it's high in protein and fiber. It has very great antioxidants. It's anti-inflammatory. Sometimes it's used in jera bread as a substitute for the teff or used in stews. So I, I think it was such a great pairing with the lamb, just absolutely delicious. Uh, actually, one of my favorites that she's made. That sounds mouth-watering. <laughs> you talked about all the ingredients and the spices, and it just speaks to me like what real soul food feels to me like. One of the things I love about sorghum is its ability to absorb flavors, you know, as a grain and so resilient and so very sustainable, but then also so like nutrient dense. So 
And definitely sorghum is a star on my culinary repertoire. Uh, Maimuna, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to sit and chat with me about your experience and your beautiful journey. I look forward to seeing what else Flavors from Afar is going to come up with and to seeing new chefs and cooks come through your kitchen. So thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. And if you're ever in Little Ethiopia, we're located right by the pedestrian crosswalk and we highlight our chefs once a month. So it's their kitchen for a full month. Right now we're focused on Somalia, but our other chefs are from Guatemala, Venezuela, Afghanistan, Eritrea, Belize. Like it's a very global experience. So thank you for having me and I wish to host you soon at Flavors from Afar. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Last but definitely not least, it's a privilege to welcome Dr. Eva Wilson-Ratun, whose career over the past 35 years has been devoted to the improvement of dryland cereals in tropical and subtropical regions, and particularly on the effective use of sorghum, permillet, and barley. Eva's research aims to promote and develop varieties of those crops that meet specific needs of farming families. She holds a doctorate from the Technical University in Munich, Germany, and among many other things, has worked as the principal scientist for sorghum and pearl millet breeding and genetic resources at the International Crops Research Institute for the Semi-Arid Tropics, ICRISAT, in Mali, West and Central Africa, and India. It is a tremendous honor to speak with you today, Eva. Welcome to the Chefs Manifesto podcast, and thank you for being here with us today. Welcome, and it's really nice to talk to you, Alessandro. <laughs> thank you. You have a lot of experience with sorghum and pearl millets in Africa uh, through your work at the International Crops Research Institute for the Semi-Arid Tropics, also known as ICRISAT. Could you tell us a little bit about the work that you have done involving sorghum? Yeah, I'm a trained plant breeder, so we were developing actually new varieties of sorghum uh, that are adapted to the growing conditions in farmers' fields in West Africa. We focused a lot initially to try and understand better what farmers actually want out of new varieties, what are essential things that are necessary so that varieties can be used for the local food products, and what would be improvements that would make it interesting for farmers to actually use the new seeds. And in that context, we also worked a lot on how farmers actually decide on growing a new seed, trying out a new variety. That's how we actually ended up working quite a lot with women and how sorghum is being cooked and prepared. This is a staple food crop in those areas where we worked, and it's a traditional crop that developed, originated in these regions in Africa. So there is a lot of culture and cultural knowledge associated with sorghum, and cooking it is, of course, the most important use. So understanding better what people actually appreciate about the grain and what grain qualities are necessary so that a variety can actually find a good place in the cropping system, but also in the food production and the food processing. So we worked a lot with women trying to understand what those kinds of criteria are. Yes, and that work is so important because crop being such a resilient grain and it carries so much nutrition, it's also a provider for many products like molasses 
molasses, like beer. It also serves to feed animals and even to create biofuels. So the more we can use it and the better ways we find to use it, the better, right? Yeah, I mean, in West Africa, where we worked mostly, it's primarily a food crop. And it's really the staple crop in one main agroecology. It's called the Sudan and Guinea savannas, where you have only one rainy season per year. It rains like three or four months in a year. And that's the only time you can produce a crop. And farmers have to produce that way during this time enough to last them for the rest of the year. The grains that they produce are to the biggest extent used for food and they're used on the farm. Very little of it is actually even sold. And the stover, the stalks that it produces at present, and traditionally they weren't used very much, mostly to just reintegrate back into the soil. But there are types of sorghum where the stems have very good qualities to be used as animal feed or to be used. Some of them have very sweet, sugary stems like sugarcane. Uh, some of these sorghums are just grown to be as, used as snacks and be chewed on by the kids mostly. So I like that idea that the kids have to grow their own sweets. Absolutely. It is so important for promoting biodiversity, especially to get kids involved in something like this from a very young age. I wanted to ask because, you know, sorghum can grow where other crops wither and it is often called the camel of crops alongside the even more resilient paramellate. So relying on these grains in the future will become more and more important. Can you explain from your perspective what this means for small-scale farmers and the environment? Well, maybe let me first talk a little bit about why sorghum is so resilient. One important reason for it is that sorghum as a species is extremely diverse. So you have very many, very different types of sorghum that are adapted from anywhere to the sand dunes of the Sahel to forest sorghums in the forested areas of the Guinea rainforest. You also have types that are adapted to the high elevations of the East African highlands in Ethiopia and Eritrea. But similarly, you have types that are adapted to extremely high temperatures in Sahel regions. They support temperatures in for seedlings above 60 degrees centigrade so for a few hours so it's really quite amazing that type of diversity is really what makes that crop so unique but that means that not every sorghum will grow everywhere you have to have the right sorghum for the right place and that's actually what's the consequence for smallholder farmers with all these changes that are happening especially with climate change because sorghum is already grown in areas that are not the easiest to grow a crop as you said the camel of crops this situation for these farmers will become more difficult and it may mean that they have to change the varieties that they're using now because the varieties that they have may be no longer adapted because the situation changes or they may need more diversity of sorghum varieties so that they can be more flexible to adapt if the rains come earlier they have maybe a variety that takes longer and if the rains come late they may have another one that finishes the season quickly or they may have different types that have some that produce more grain for food but others that maybe you know you gain flexibility if you have multiple products from the same crop like if you can have 
good animal fodder from the stems and a good yeah, acceptable quality of grain. If the season ends up not being perfect, your grain yields may be low, but you still end up with very good quality of fodder for your animals. So this gives some kind of flexibility or that way resilience to farmers to have maybe some new varieties that combine different traits, different adaptations. But of course, it's a challenge because all these changes are not predictable. The only predictions you can get from climate scientists about climate change, especially in these areas, is that the extreme events will increase and everything else is not predictable. And extreme events are the worst. You cannot predict those and they may be devastating at any moment. That way, the only option farmers have is to have more access to more diversity in terms of crops and also in terms of varieties and possibly to manage the lands that they have in a way that they are less vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of biodiversity, I was fascinated to hear that the gene bank at Acrisat holds more than 40,000 samples of sorghum diversity. So it goes beyond just the type that I was familiar with. I do understand that there's a beautiful color range available uh, when it comes to sorghum. And I would love to hear from you the different ways that you've eaten sorghum and uh, menus in restaurants and the interest in culinary uses and the variety of colors that I mentioned. Yeah, that's one aspect of sorghum diversity is that the grains come in very many different colors. Uh, the interesting thing is that in any one area, usually one color is preferred. So you find some areas people only really prefer white sorghums and they don't want any colors or spots or things on it. And other areas, they will really only want orange or red sorghums. They use the red ones for the, some very specific purposes, whereas they use the white ones for some other purpose. You don't often find a whole range of colors in any one region. As you may imagine, with these different types of sorghums in different areas across Africa, and they are all traditional crops there, you have very many traditional uses of sorghum. I tried actually because you'd sent me the questions earlier. I thought about this <laughs> and made a list of all the kinds of things that I ate sorghum. And I was kind of surprised how many things actually <laughs> there are. Maybe I'll just start with the more common ones that are very commonly eaten, at least in West Africa. These are some thick porridges and thin porridges. The thick porridge in West Africa has very many places called to or tuo or something like that. And it's similar to ugali in East Africa. Um, not quite as stiff as ugali, but similar. But interestingly, in the places where I was, mostly people preferred the white grain for making this kind of porridge. Even though the porridge would often turn something like a beige color or a bit of gray, that was acceptable. But red color was not at all acceptable. So if sometimes we had red color, discolored grains, farmers were not happy to eat that. But in contrast, in East Africa, the Western Kenya, for example, most of the sorghums are red colored and the ugali from sorghum is actually called brown ugali. It turns brown once you cook it. And white ugali is from maize, so there's no white ugali from sorghum. <laughs> Although I suppose it would be possible. I said there are some thin porridges that are in West Africa eaten very commonly for breakfast. And some of those are fermented or they're prepared from very fine flour with some kind of balls made beforehand that you just cook again. Some things are steamed like couscous is also a common dish uh, more in the Sahelian areas where the, because it's a special kind of varieties that 
are good for couscous, they're different than the ones that you use for the porridges. And these are similar to the ones that are used in India to make chapatis. It's a very specific kind of sorghum there that is only grown after the rains have finished, only on residual moisture, that has these very good grain qualities for making chapatis. And of course, there's a lot of sorghum beer made in different places. So sorghum is very commonly used for beer and very often the colored grains are used for making beer so the beer has a certain color. Then I have also eaten sorghum cooked as whole grains in Kenya with beans together as a dish. They cook that same dish very commonly with maize but it is also cooked with sorghum. And then there's of course the syrup. You can eat the sweet stalks and so there's very different types of things that you can eat from sorghum. And in the U.S., you can actually buy some uh, ground-up sorghum porridge that you can just cook at home, like you cook oatmeal or something else. Uh, that's all amazing. You just brought me back to my childhood in the southern part in the Bolivar state of Venezuela, where little indigenous kids usually grab the stalk of sorghum and chew on it to get the sweetness from it. You know, it's so fun. It, these are such beautiful memories for me, but it warms my heart to know that that's something that is done in other parts of the world as well. <laughs> Even my kids enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> and there's actually a kind of sorghum where they have sweet grains that are eaten like sweet corn when they are just filling up the grains before they get hard. It's a panicle with a, like a grass, but with big grains on it that you just pluck off and eat. But that I have only seen in Burkina Faso. Well, hopefully this is something that we can now through the Chef's Manifesto podcast encourage other people to include sorghum in their own culinary palate and start cooking it at home so that we can perpetuate the use of this amazing grain. I want to thank you, Eva, so much for your time and for being here with us today. I look forward to future conversations. And again, thanks so much for accepting our invitation. Welcome, welcome. It's nice talking to you. It's great talking to you. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Crop diversity is essential for life on Earth. It underpins nearly everything we eat and drink. Throughout the history of agriculture, farmers have generated a seemingly endless diversity within crops, discovering ingenious solutions to local challenges. Meanwhile, many of the wild relatives of these crops have also persisted in nature, adapted to tough environments. Crop diversity allows farmers to feed the world, but this diversity is disappearing, and once it's lost, it's lost forever. We need crop diversity available to all through an efficient global system to ensure good, nutritious food at affordable prices for all without expanding agriculture's ecological footprint. Everyone has a role to play in safeguarding biodiversity and in working towards achieving good food for all. The Chef's Manifesto in thematic area two encourages and guides chefs across the world to do the same and lead by examples in their kitchens, restaurants, and communities. And that's all for episode two of the Chef's Manifesto podcast, season three, produced in collaboration with Crop Trust and Food Forever. I'm your host, Chef Alejandra Schrader. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. Please subscribe to our channels, rate and comment below. Your feedback is invaluable to us and your participation really helps boost our reach. 
We want to talk to and engage with as many chefs as we can around the world to talk sustainability and strengthen our global movement of chefs at the forefront of change. See you next week when we take a closer look at coffee with Chef Daniel Kaplan, Chef Eileen Yazioglu, and expert Rolando Cerda and Sarada Krishnan. Thanks for listening. There are eight thematic areas. Ingredients grown with respect to the earth. Friendly to oceans. Protection of biodiversity and improved animal welfare. Investment in livelihoods. Value natural resources. And reduce waste. Waste is recyclable. Waste is unnecessary. Waste is criminal. A celebration of local and seasonal food. A focus on plant-based ingredients. Education on food safety. And healthy diets. Nutritious food that is accessible and affordable to all. Chefs. Politicians. Suppliers. Farmers. Educators. Chefs together can change the world. Get involved. Get involved. Get involved. <laughs> Get involved. <laughs>